what the really good ones do, and you see it from Rory McElroy or Dustin Johnson or these sorts of guys, is they take the data and they create a feel out of it personally. And then they work to, they use the data just to confirm what they're feeling. So they're making something manifest, something that they can own under pressure. And welcome to episode 27 of the Graph Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Fairholm. We have a very special guest today, Mark Immelman, a PGA Tour broadcaster, host of the On The Mark Podcast, a longtime swing instructor, and of course, the brother of former Masters champion Trevor Immelman joined the podcast. We covered a lot of ground in this one. We started with Mark's career path to this point, what amateurs should and shouldn't try to copy from the professional game, breaking down how to evaluate your own golf swing, why amateurs should almost never aim at the flag on approach shots, and a lot more. Mark really is as intelligent as they come when talking about the golf swing. I know I learned a ton listening to him, so I really hope you enjoy this pod. Before we jump in, just a reminder that you can find out more about Graph Golf and our Smart Golf Ball and Analytics platform at our website, graph.golf. You can also click on the club tab there where all of our articles and podcasts are located. I recently wrote about how high you should tee the ball up depending on what club you have. And my colleague Ryan Evans wrote about understanding what clubs to buy if you are a beginner. There's a lot of great content there and you can also sign up for our newsletter to be alerted about company updates as we get closer to launch. Without further delay, here is this week's conversation with Mark Immelman. I'm very excited to you know, ask you a few questions about the golf swing given your expertise. But before that, I want to start with your background in the in the game growing up in, in South Africa. How did you first get introduced to golf? And uh, what led you to play golf in uh, the US at, at Columbus State, no less? Yeah. Um... How I got into golf was by sheer serendipity. I got badly injured in a rugby game. Um, I've always been of slight stature, I guess. And I was, I broke my arm in rugby and the coach told my parents that that's enough. He's not big enough to play the game. And so I had a, a surgery to fix the broken wrist. And then after the healing, a few months later, whenever it was, one Saturday morning, my buddies were like, we're going to play golf. You want to join us? And uh, I'd never really played golf before, and my dad said, there, there's an old set of clubs in the garage. They were right-handed, and I'm left-handed naturally. And so off I went, and the proverbial bug bit. That was at age 13. And then I have this younger brother who at that stage was four. And so a few weeks later, he tagged along because I think my parents realized that, hey, this is built-in babysitting during the summer. And so Trevor and I got into the game. I was 13. He was four. And thankfully, the rest is kind of history. And and I was successful as an amateur golfer. And then back then, South Africa had mandatory military service. So I went and did my year and a half. was just shy of two years. And I graduated, and I was good, but I didn't think I was good enough to play professionally just yet. Um, and so I started caddying. And caddying around the place, and I caddied for a few guys in the Sunshine Tour in South Africa. I worked for a guy called Tommy Tolls, who turned into a good player in the PGA Tour. He took a week off, and a good buddy of his, um, Hugh Royer, came out to play a couple of three weeks. 
And so he said to me, he goes, pick up Hughes bag, which I did. And the first week we were together, he finished runner-up in a playoff, incidentally, in one of South Africa's top events. And so he paid me to stay on. And so I carried some more. And then we played golf together the one day. And he was like, I played pretty well. And he's like, dude, what are you doing caddying? And um, I was like, well, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> and so he goes, go to college. And I was like, all right, how do you do that? And uh, he goes, my dad is a professional in Columbus, Georgia. He's the assistant coach for the golf team. We'll just send him a video. So we send the video. They had a look. They made an offer. Long story short, over I come. I'd never been to Columbus ever. And good career over there in college, four-time All-America and stuff. And lo and behold, now we're back in Columbus. And I was the coach here for a while. Recently retired last year. And so it, it's, it's sort of tying a big a big bow on this uh, worldwide jaunt that I had. And it's all thanks to golf. And you're being modest. You, you won a couple of national championships where you're at Columbus State as well. The, te the team was uh, was pretty good at the time. Yeah, the team was good. Uh, a lot of us turned professional. Uh, a few guys still play. Um, I played three events and I had a top 10 and a miscut and a middling finish. And and then uh, I decided golf instruction was the way to go. But, you know, we had a really sound team. Um, and back then, Division Two, we competed against all Division One teams and we were beating all in sundry. And uh, I didn't realize at the time, I don't think any of us realized how good we were. And looking back on it now, we were like, wow, I mean, we broke all sorts of records and stuff. And it was, it was fun. It was, it was, it was pretty cool to be a part of it. And it was a great place to learn. And of course, it's now become our family, family home, which is even bigger a blessing. And what led you to golf instruction? Were you always interested from a young age or did that come kind of later in life where you got interested in that? Um, well. I was hired by IMG, the management company, um, and I was working as an agent for them. But, you know, that, that was cool, but it wasn't really my scene. And I'd always been interested in, in just in the method and the instruction of the game. And so I was reading voraciously at the time and watching swing videos and clipping out golf swing sequences from magazines because in our office, we got every single one of them, you know, working for IMG. And so I had all the swing sequences saved. And so I started to give a few lessons to our, my colleagues on the side at the range down the road from the office. And I just grew a passion for it. And my dad then later, many moons later, said to me, he goes, when you were a kid, you walked into the room one day and said you wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> and lo and behold, I become a teacher of a game I loved. And then that teaching thing sort of angled me in the direction where I could run a lane in broadcast that not many folks do. So in the whole, in a whole way, it's sort of been real, as I say, serendipitous, the way it's all worked out. And all the experience I gained from the instructions now equipped me to do what I do in television. And in, in terms of golf instruction, how has that evolved from earlier in your career to where it is now uh, and and to go along with that what were you reading and what were you kind of uh looking into at in terms of golf instruction earlier and, and what are you what are you doing now in terms of kind of uh studying the golf swing well the books i read are pretty much the same um i was fortunate as a young man to meet john jacobs when i was still playing i met him through david frost and 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 um bob torrance and Mr. Jacobs, to me, was virtuoso. He changed my view of the golf swing because I'd learned from David Ledbetter when I was a young instructor. 
And when I read John Jacob's Practical Golf, it sort of highlighted to me the value of the club and how the ball moves. Mm. And then it got me thinking back on my career as a youngster in South Africa. I played all sports and cricket was one of them. And cricket, I can make a straight swing, but if I angle the bat, the ball goes in the direction where the bat's pointing. And when I was playing golf, even though I was good, I never equated crooked shots to that. I was always like going to find it in my pivots or something like that because of everything I knew. So I learned so much from Jacobs and I got to meet him. And so in a strange sort of a way, he was a launch monitor before there were launch monitors. I mean, he gave a lesson one time that I watched where he wasn't watching the golfer. He turned around. He just watched the golf ball. And he just asked the golfer, how do you strike that? And he'd fix them by never watching them hit. He just watched the golf ball travel. And so I that sort of predicated what I started to do as an instructor. And at that stage, it was a bit taboo because there were certain beliefs and such. But in a strange sort of a way now, um, with launch monitors and stuff and the advent of all of those sorts of things, uh, it's all in vogue to talk about faces, alignment, and swings path and angle of attack and stuff like Jacobs did way back. Um, now it's kind of every, everything everyone talks about. Mm -hmm. And they allow the athlete physically to respond to how the club face is traveling. So all the books I read are the same. Um, we just have more data at our disposal now to be able to help us analyze golf swings. But as I said, Jacobs did so without a launch monitor ever. And so if you really know what you're looking for and you understand how things work, how matchups work, how the face interacts with the ball and then how the body interacts with the club face, you're pretty well going to be on your way. So, so, so I still approach things from that point of view and thankfully, you know, still quite successful, you know, with golf lessons and helping folks to achieve their goals. I had a few questions about the golf swing that I wanted to ask you, but let, let's start with the topic we just talked about in terms of the reliance on TrackMan and, and other uh, and other launch monitors in the professional game and the elite amateur game. Do you feel like uh, elite amateurs and professionals are overly reliant on those numbers? I think the folks that really know what they're doing use the numbers well. I think the folks that don't really know what they're doing can get themselves tied in knots by looking at these numbers because a lot of folks will look at just one data parameter. Now, I'm not talking about ball stuff. I'm talking about club face and club performance stuff. So they might get wrapped up in swing path. And so they just work on swing path, but you've got to understand that the path and the face work together for curvature. You must understand that the path and the angle of attack have sort of a cousin's relationship where the path and the angle of attack work together. And so the really advanced golfers, I think, know what they're looking for. I think the not-so-advanced golfers can get a bit mixed up and maybe help themselves down rabbit holes by, with great intentions. But then through it all, I think what the really good ones do, and you see it from a Rory McElroy or a Dustin Johnson or these sorts of guys, is they take the data and they create a feel out of it personally. And then they work to, they use the data just to confirm what they're feeling. So they're making something manifest, something that they can own under pressure. Mm. And then also, a lot of them will not live by the data. It's not like they're looking at every, after every swing at, at, at the, the face of the digital device to see what that thing did. 
Now, if they're trying to make changes, they might. But if they're playing well, they'll just look once in a while. Or they'll just look at the average of all of the data collected. So, yeah, I would say that the more advanced um, golfer that understands the nature of it all, they'd be a little bit more maybe circumspect with the way they take on uh, all the information. And, you know, you're you're out watching the PGA Tour. You're very close to players of that caliber. You've you've been around greatness with with your brother, of course, but you you've also taught you know normal average golfers who are fifteen to twenty handicapped. You're around the game at at that level as well. Are those two worlds the the elite game and kind of the average player? Is that are those two worlds further apart than they ever have been at this point? In your opinion, um, the only thing really, well, yes. If I just gave you two parameters, I guess. I could say yes, because the difference in speed is gigantic. And then the difference in the repetition of the movement is different. Um, like I can take a, an elite amateur, an elite professional, there'll be a difference in speed. And there'll definitely be a difference in how many times the professional will do that consistently. Or if there was a variance between a high number, a number and a low number, if they had like 10 shots for argument's sakes, the professional's number would be a bit tighter. But the elite amateur can do that. Um, the beginning or the uh, middling amateur would sort of do that once in a while, but you'd see a bigger variance between top and bottom. So, you know, I guess in the final analysis, Sean, it's all the same. You know, how a club golfer puts the club on the ball in comparison to a professional golfer when they strike it squarely is the same-ish. It's just speed that varies. Mm. Um, because all of the pros, that's the one thing that uh, la the launch monitor has allowed the professionals to do is they've, they sort of find their zone where they perform their best. Like a Bryson DeChambeau, for argument's sake, with, with a swing path, likes it in about the four to six degree to the right vein, sort of in that window. Now, a lot of folks would say, well, wow, that's too far inside out, but that's mm -hmm. where Bryson performs his best. And the amateur might be there too. They might just not put the face on the ball appropriately or certainly as fast as he does. So everyone with a launch monitor is sort of finding where they do their best. And they're not trying to be perfect. They're just trying to stay within their area, if that makes sense. Right, right. In the professional game, with how important the driver has become now, it seems like a lot of guys are able to generate that speed and not have the fear of, uh, of missing uh, quite as wide as they, they may have had in, in previous generations. Is there something that the average golfer can learn from that? Or is that just a product of the amount of speed that professionals are able to generate? They, they have that comfort uh, level with, with relying on drivers so heavily. I would say the, the counsel I would give the amateur golfer is say, look, it's helpful to drive it longer. But if you're driving it longer and crooked all of the time, that's not going to be helpful. You see, the one thing the professional golfer will do is they'll pretty well avoid the disastrous ball. You know, if they hit one errant, it won't typically won't result in a penalty. Where, you know, if some amateur golfer is getting fast and they pick up 10 miles an hour, but every so often they hit a sightseer that costs them two or three on the scorecard, then speed to me is not helping any. But again, I'm going to preface that by saying that if you hit the ball, the closer you are to, to the target, the easier you make the next shot. 
but that's if you can hit the next shot. Right. So yes, so so that's what the pros do. They can put the ball where disaster isn't, even if it's in the rough, and they can play from closer. But then the, the second part of the equation is generating speed correctly. Mm. And I know this because um, I've always believed it, really, not to toot my own horn, but here recently when I had Bryson, and I use him because he was recently on my podcast, he said to me that his understanding of speed has changed. Um, when he started on the journey, he just got big and strong and he said i just try to be as big and as heavy and as strong as i could so i could sort of grip the ground and swing as hard as i could and then he hooked up with kyle berkshire who said to him no you got to use width in your swing you got to use lightness on your feet you got to use these elements and so bryson built them in and he's now smaller than what he was but he creates speed more efficiently and so now he's actually faster and to a large extent, I don't think is doing his body as much of a disservice. Mm -hmm. So I would counsel the folks how you go about speed and how you release the speed at the right time is hugely important. Just getting faster doesn't necessarily mean you're going to drive it longer. Do you think what Bryson is doing now is more sustainable because of that shift? Because a lot of people have speculated that, you know, that method that he's taken the past couple of years is is not something they could that can last forever. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, it's you look at the average NFL career for argument's sake, right? And I heard something ludicrous like it's about three and a half years because they are getting hit at 50, 60, 70 miles an hour by oncoming traffic. And the more collision you take, the more your body's going to undergo wear and tear. And with golfers at high speed, you see that because we're hitting the ground at 100 miles an hour, whatever the case might be. And that's going to do fascia and joints and all that sort of stuff in and when you're tr transferring mass on the ground real hard and your feet twist and stuff your ankles and knees and those joints start to take a load too so yeah i would say that in in a certain way now he's probably going to be less injury prone but you never really know i mean it's that that is my wish for every professional golfer whenever i'm asked on a podcast or whatever and people start sort of prognosticating about well, what's he going to win how many is he going to win i'm like if he stays healthy he has the potential to and and so it's injury is it happens quick and uh so yeah i would think he'd, he'd be less injury prone but you never really know that that's the that's the one unknown of the game and no launch monitor and no st stats guru could ever predict that either i'm interested in your opinion on this golf instruction has always had this core tenant of the average joe kind of trying to model their games after the elite players whether that's looking at a magazine and seeing their swing sequence or or, or whatever that may be D does that still hold true today because you know like in my opinion there there are going to be physical movements that certain pros may be may be able to achieve achieve that where uh, you know some players may be limited in flexibility or other parts of their golf swing uh for example when you when you see someone like Justin Thomas or Alexi Thompson lifting their lead foot off the ground through impact. That's not necessarily something that another golfer would want to mimic. I uh, just, I'm just interested in your opinion on, uh, on just the, you know, modeling your game after like a professionals. You know what? That's a, that's a super question. And, and, and what I would say to that is it's not bad to model your game on someone's golf swing who you admire. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can do exactly what they say. Mm. You can pick elements that they do well that don't require a, a modicum of skill. 
and you used uh, JT or Lexi, all that footwork and then to put the club squarely on the ball every time, that's a lot of skill and mm. a lot of practice that that takes. And not everyone has that. So, you know, trying to copy JT's footwork, I wouldn't recommend. But I would say to you, hey, copy JT's grip all day long. Mm. Or copy um, the way he swings his arms into the top of the backswing. Or, or something that is not really skill-based. Um, I spoke recently with Fred Couples, and he said there were certain golfers he would always watch. Like he'd always watch Ernie else for rhythm. I used to watch Ernie when I was playing too because the rhythm was infectious, the tempo. He said he used to copy Nick Feldo for fundamentals like ball position and pre-shot routine and stuff like that. So copying professionals from that sense, pre-shot routines, ball positions, grip, all that sort of thing, shot selection, I think is a great idea. But you know, getting out there and trying to swing it like Brasson, I don't think you're going to do yourself many favors. Maybe you might pick up a little bit of speed, but again, like Mr. Jacobs would say, uh, John Jacobs, that is, he goes, whatever you do in the golf swing, it must manifest in a better ball flight. And if it doesn't, then you're doing the wrong thing and you're wasting your time. Another thing along those lines, how does an amateur understand their grip in relation to a golf swing? Because we've seen over the years where a player like Zach Johnson may have a, a stronger grip and have success, or a player like Jose Maria Othabo might have a weaker grip and have success based on what they can accomplish uh, in, in their golf swing. Is there a foundation that you kind of build for, for the average player to kind of understand where their grip should start? Should everybody start at neutral and then build off of that? Or what, what, what advice would you give people? That's another really good question because therein lies accuracy. You know, if you can understand, because the club face's alignment will give the golf ball the, the most and the biggest message. So understanding how your hands and the face interact, um, or not just your hands, how the situation of your hands and how your arms get back in front of your body and how they interact and affect the club face is sort of the key to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I would always recommend sort of standard. And now, nowadays, the standard grip has eked a little stronger than what it was back maybe when I was playing, just because of the fact that the ball doesn't spin as much and it needs more speed to get into the air. You know, back when I played, the ball was very spinny and would climb. And to a certain extent, we'd try and have to turn the thing down so it didn't climb very much. So, yes, I, I would I would always start at neutral and then allow the player to go a little stronger or a little weaker so they began to see what they wanted. But then you also must understand that, you know, that's just one element. And so I'm always like, well, swing the club back in front of you with however you're holding it. And if you see the face habitually closing, then you must know, okay, well, then if you want to draw the ball, then you're okay. Mm. If you want to fade it, then you now must neutralize that with extra body rotation. So then I'll explain to them the matchup of having the stronger grip. If you wanted to draw the ball, what you must do physically. If you wanted to fade the ball, what you must do physically. And vice versa on the other side of the equation. And then when you begin to understand that sort of thing, then you sort of on your way. Uh, it's understanding body rotation versus where the arms are. But the main thing always is just to get the hands and the, and the club face mm -hmm. to sort of be to a place where you have an idea where the toe of the club is because the toe versus heel relationship is probably the biggest one in the game. Uh, I'm also very interested in how you teach the takeaway in the golf swing because that, that could be something that gets overgeneralized sometimes where we have phrases like, you know, low, low and slow. Um, 
just trying to kind of give folks an understanding of what to feel on the takeaway. But a lot of people don't really understand whether they should move their arms first or or their their hips back at the same time as their arms. Is there a, a foundation that you offer people? Is it is it dependent on what someone can accomplish in their golf swing? Or I'm just interested in your opinion on that. It's always dependent on what they can accomplish. But I am very much a disciple. I'm kind of the bridge between the old and the new school. And so I've learned, thankful, I've been thankful to learn from a lot of legends of the game. And Nick Price was one of them. And and then Jack Nicholas always spoke about swinging the club through the positions, not positioning the club through the swing. And Pricey was the same way. And he'd do it almost every time he'd practice where he'd start with a club head in front of the ball and he'd swing the club head back. So it had a running start and then respond to that and hit. So I'm always more inclined to go to movement because if the club's swinging freely, it's likely to find the most efficient journey. That's just... Uh, an element of physics. So, you know, I, I might say to you that if you're too handsy or you may want to, you know, rotate your middle a little bit more, or if you, uh, if your arms are dragging across you, I might give you some key, but I'll always have everyone in a practice swing, start with a club head out in front and swing it back. Give that club a running start, but don't go to sleep on that. Be aware of how you are physically, you know, where do you feel the middle rotating? How does the face feel in relation to where you are? Um, when, what sort of tilt is your body on? So you start to make folks aware so they can piece this together. And then if something feels awry, they can maybe go, maybe go, well, you know, I might not be shifting pressure in my feet enough. So I, I let the movement be their guide. But I would, might say to a person, well, you're a little too handsy early. We want to neutralize that. But instead of them going, well, let's keep those hands quieter, which is hard. Let's say this is what the movement feels like. Now go and rehearse that and rehearse that and add movement to the thing because the movement is going to show you kind of what it feels like. And if you have a sense for feel, then you'll always be able to sort of trend toward that. And another fundamental I I find is consistent consistently misunderstood is the concept of of aim. Um, your 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 club face relative to your the the path of your of your feet and and the alignment of your of your shoulders um i remember hearing uh jack nicholas say that he had multiple targets the you know the the finished uh target of where he wanted the shot to go the an intermediate target maybe a leaf or, or something small in front of him where he could aim the club face and then also a, a target behind him to take the club back on um in terms of aim and kind of making people understand the concept of aim and how the club face relates to their body. How do you, how do you go about kind of allowing somebody to, to understand that in a way that makes sense to them? Well, I believe again, this is Jacob's ism. I believe the face is more important than the body alignment mm. because the face messages, the golf ball where your feet point have never really ever influenced the ball directly. Now they may have a direct uh, influence on where the swing's going toward, but that's not direct. So I'm always very much one for get the face looking where you'd like the golf ball to go. Um, and I'm kind of curious in a way too, because like I've always liked the face because it swings around an arc and there's, you know, there's a toe heel relationship and the toe should travel faster than the heel because of the nature of the arc. Right. And so I'm always like, like if you want to draw the golf ball, I'm going to say to you, Hey, let's set the face up a whisker more open 
and let's have you learn how to close this thing. Or if you want to fade the thing, I'm going to say to you, hey, let's set this thing a little more closed and have you learn how to control the face through the ball to fade it. You see, because then you're playing from like open to shut or shut to open, if you will. So I'm quick to do that to develop the skill of it. But in terms of just pure alignment and aiming, I would say aim the face and then match your body around that. And that's mm. what all the greats have always done. I, I'm not going to deviate from that too much. And if you watch a Tom Watson for argument's sake, you know, there was never much care with where the feet were aiming. It was like you'd see him get the face down into position. And then you'd see uh, Matt Kuchar for argument's sake, who fades the ball habitually, but drops his right foot in behind him. And then you'd see uh, certain like a Lee Trevino, who would feet would be shuffling around all of the time. You'd go from shut to open to open, all the rest. And then wherever the face went was what the ball was going to do. So I, I, I address the feet and their positioning and the body alignment to sort of shape swing path a little and to shape angle of attack some as you move the ball around. But I'm always about making sure that face is where it is. You know, mm -hmm. if you want to hit it high with a long iron, get the face a touch more open. Don't be setting up with the thing shut because you're likely going to react and tilt to get the thing in the air. So let use the club as your magic wand and realize that leading edge to the is kind of your it's your north and south and where you get that thing and that's where you can move around we get so many questions of from golfers who are simply overwhelmed by the influx of information that we have in in today's <laughs> modern world with the golf swing we have youtube videos we have uh you know we have all sorts of different ideas about the golf swing where, where does somebody where does somebody start in terms of just understanding what they're like evaluating their own game? Where, where do you, do you, can you track your own game through your own strokes, strokes gained uh, method? Um, do, do you need to kind of just evaluate your own golf swing um, in, in terms of whether your equipment is right for you? What, what's, what's step one from, from cut, cutting through uh, all the different information that we have nowadays? Uh, Google's lowest scores. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would, I would start with your PGA professional. I know it sounds trite, but go to someone who knows what they're doing. And then once you have, a, once they've pointed you in the right direction, then you, uh, it sort of will hurt, I think, at times where it's not the best in use. But then use an app or something that gives you a realistic barometer of where you are. Like most folks, when they get on a launch monitor for the first time, they're like, no, 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 I don't hit the ball that short. No, I, I hit it farther than that. <laughs> but if you take that information on board and you realize this is honest, then you can start to get a bit of a, an understanding of where you are. Because mm. improvement will only happen if you're doing the right thing. And if you think you're X and you're actually doing Y, then you're going to be spinning your wheels all the time. I had a lesson, I've just come from it now, where I was using that little DeWiz Golf, golf swing uh, modifier and I had it on her wrist and she used the words afterwards she goes it was a revelation because mm -hmm. what she thought she was doing and what this thing proved to her were like poles apart and then as soon as she hit a shot a bad one before this event she would hit herself with a regular advil for the golf swing like oh I swung too fast or oh I did this you know I, I moved my head or I didn't keep my eye on the ball you know the regular stuff so I would say go to your professional uh, get a real understanding of who you are where you are what you're capable of doing you might want to check in with uh, someone some sort of gym instructor that could help you with 
getting a physical assessment, and then realize that what you hear, if you measure it, is true. And then start to chart a course to start to address little areas. And that doesn't mean that you're going to turn it overnight. That's the one thing I learned from Butch Harmon. He said to me when he started working with Tiger, it took about two years before he won again. Mm. They won in 97 in the Masters. And then there was that lull period. It was a year and a half, whatever it was. And he goes, even Tiger, arguably the greatest to ever play the game, took that amount of time to remodel himself. Mm. So then you just get to the thing and you just chip away from, at the thing a little bit at a time and you'll start to see inroads. Mm. But I will say this. Yeah, power is important. But if you're working on your golf swing, realize that it's still a game of scoring and if you get good at shot number one that's never guaranteed very many threes and fours if you drive it well you'll eliminate big numbers sixes and sevens and stuff but if you want to keep your scores going down whilst you're working on your swing get good at shot number three bunker chip pitch putt because that's how you'll keep the scores tracking while you're working on your swing because otherwise you're going to be working on your swing playing crappy then you're going to lose confidence. Then you're going to get aggro. And then that vortex starts to go in the wrong direction. So during that work, invest time in your short game. Because in the end, if you're good at shot number three, you're going to make it a lot of threes and fours. We are, we're very into strategy at, at Graph. So I'm, I'm curious about your opinion about uh, the, the, the move to the, the Scott Fawcett decade method as being kind of the, one of the main ways that, that pros play the game and, and amateurs for for that matter. Uh, what are your opinions on uh, the changing strategies in golf and the uh, the birdies are happy accidents method of, uh, of playing the game and kind of, um, you know, making sure that you're, you're minimizing your risk, uh, particularly on approach shots? I would say that the majority of golfers listening to this, they would lower their score if they take on less risk. It's only the guys and the girls at the very highest level that can take the risk and then know in the back of their minds that they're likely to pull it off. Like I could go and sit at a, a craps table or a blackjack table in Vegas and risk everything, and I might hit once in a while. But largely the house is going to win. And the truth about the golf course is it's pretty much going to win. If it wasn't the case, you'd see professional golfers shooting stupid low scores week in and week out but they don't so I, I think a lot of golfers need to learn how to manage themselves get good information make smart decisions stake stack the odds in your favor yes now someone said well if i drive it longer i've stacked the odds in my favor i'm like oh yeah absolutely but if you if the, every third ball at 120 mile an hour is sightseeing that you're not stacking the odds in your favor so yeah, I'm very much on board with with proper course management. Heck, it's how you win big events. In the, at the final analysis, all the big events that I cover, and it comes right down to it. Yeah, I joked with John Woody, who was on my podcast the other day, and he's a really good caddy, and I rate him as an announcer. I'm like, you know what I love about you caddies? I'm like, you're insanely positive all of the time because your guy's defining how much you're going to earn. And then I'm like, final watchword, always, when they're hitting an approach shot, is at the television tower 
<laughs> if you look at where TV tower is, it's right behind the middle of the green. That flag might be tucked behind a bunker. You're the caddy guy, right at the edge of the TV tower. So he's saying to his dude, hey, 25 feet left of this thing. So, so if the pros are doing that, I can't see why the amateurs are going ahead and firing at some silly hole locations because they don't necessarily have the skills to be able to pull that shot off. Now they could, but again, what are the odds of doing it? So I'm completely on board with what you guys do. So it, it seems like amateurs are overly aggressive when it comes to approach shots in, in particular. I mean, the, the percentage of pros who are actually aiming at the flag is probably uh, far less than what we uh, we actually realize. Well, two, two things there, and I, I'm going to say the first one, and I want you to remind me of the second one. Um, Nick Feldo said to me, he goes, when I was playing, and this guy was a world beater, right? He goes, when I was playing, I'd get to the ball with Fanny, and I'd look at the thing, she'd give me the yardage, and I'd say to myself, what do I want and what can I do? Because I want to hit it next to the flag. Can I do that right now to that whole location? Maybe not. So then he'd move his target and he goes, okay, that I want, can I do that? And he'd keep moving the target till what do I want and what can I do intersected? And this is one of the great iron players and course generals of all time. So that's the first thing. And then I was saying earlier about shot number three. This is my second point. Amateurs think they're going to make birdies by hitting the ball closer. I'm saying to you, you're going to make birdies by making putts mm. and stuff like that. Now, yes, it's easier to make a five-footer than a 25-footer, but I'm going to say to you, I'd give you 30 feet from the middle of the green all day long, and you're going to shoot it way lower than what you would if you were in a bunker and then missing the green and missing it. If you just give yourself a chance to putt, you hit more greens in regulation, your scores will come down. Mm. So play to the large side of the target. Every grade I've ever seen does that. They really do. It, it worked out pretty well for Tiger throughout his career. There were there were definitely several majors where uh, he lived in, in the center of greens, playing fairly conservatively, right? <laughs> well, that's well, that's where um, he apparently the word goes that he gave Maverick McNeely a lesson, and McNeely said to him, he was a pretty smart guy. He goes, Tiger, so what was the key? And Tiger goes, I was a great lag putter, and Maverick goes, whatever. He goes, no, really. He goes, I could hit. I knew I'd reach the most par fives in two because Tiger was long in his day. He goes, so that's basically three guaranteed birdies, maybe four. He goes, the other ones, I just had to hit the ball in the middle of the green and not three putts. So I'm making 14 pars and four birdies, 68 four times, and that's 16 under. If I do that in a major, I'm lapping the field. We saw him do that. If I do that in a regular event, I pick up one or two more, then that's probably winning two. So, so yeah, if it's good for Tiger, it should be good for all of us, right? Absolutely. Uh, Mark, last thing, if people want to find out more about you and, and your instruction, uh, where can they go to, to find out more information? They can check me out at my website. It's markillman.com, just my name. Um, you can find the podcast and the vodcast there too, but otherwise just just search on the mark wherever you get your podcasts. Um, YouTube, I'm available. Mark Immelman, uh, Facebook. My handle on social is at Mark underscore Immelman. And I love, I love to hear from folks. You know, I'll get to people when I can. And, and you know, even though I'm an announcer now, deep down, I'm still a golf teacher. So it's kind of my DNA. You, you never quit being a golf teacher, right? Once once you start, you never finish. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the podcast. And uh, best wishes moving forward. I appreciate you, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Mark for coming on the podcast. And one more thing before we sign off. Next week's episode is really cool. I talked to Nick Sherburn, 
the founder of Club Champion, and we went deep on everything to do with club fitting. Why golfers of all skill levels should consider getting fit, what is the process like, why does it matter, and how do analytics interact with club fitting? Very, very interesting conversation. Just everything you could ever want to know about club fitting, which for some of us is kind of a, a bit of a mysterious area of the game. So I was just so pumped up to talk to Nick about this. It was one of my favorite episodes we've done so far. So be on the lookout for that next Monday, Valentine's Day, February 14th. We'll see you then. Cheers.